Paul has spoken into the regional and local pastors and leaders' lives and seen some great things happen. On Friday evening, uh, Pastor Paul spoke to the leaders in this church here, and it was just a a great night. Then yesterday, we had the uh, community engagement seminar, just uh, community transformation things that that Pastor Paul shared with Grant as well. We really do. Can you please pass on to Grant just our profound thanks for his ministry and his input over the weekend as well. It's been fantastic. Um, Pastor Paul uh, first came to my attention at our state conference late last year down in Adelaide, and he spoke about uh, engaging the community. And at that conference, he spoke about his book, Thank God It's Monday. I obtained a copy of that book, and I read it, and it gripped me. It, was, it did something deep in my heart and my soul, and I knew that God was speaking to me directly about uh, what we as a church uh, must engage on and must be a part of doing. And since that time, uh, the leadership team have read the book and there's others who've read the book as well. And, and again, for them, it's been a journey of just seeing what God wants us to do. I guarantee you this morning that if you, you will lean into what Pastor Paul talks about, that God will speak to you about some things that uh, he's wanting to position you for and get you ready for, to help you to realize your significance and I think that's a great and wonderful thing. Pastor Paul is a senior pastor of Lighthouse, a church with three campuses in Wollongong, New South Wales. He's also on the state executive for the ACC of New South Wales and also serves in the national executive as the community engagement officer. But more than that, Pastor Paul is a great husband, a great father to his children and a child of God. And I just love hearing him speak. So let's stand this morning and let's welcome Pastor Paul as he ministers the word this morning. Thanks, Paul. That's right. Oh, there you go. It's actually working. I just wanted to Gary to touch my back there. I thought that was... We're a bit, a bit strange in New South Wales. Well, it's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, what a great church you have and great people. I feel really blessed the last few days just to get to know a few of you and uh, just a great heart and passion. You have great pastors as well, don't you, and Gary and Jane? You... Uh, I, I know, because I've, I've been in the one church. Yeah, give him a clap. I was hoping you would spontaneously clap. That was the idea. Uh, you know, we can have our pastors for a long time, and we can often uh, forget of the great uh, work and hardship and challenge it is to lead a church. I was a, before I was a senior pastor of my church, I was a, a builder, carpenter builder, and a project manager for a large building company. And uh, I used to work 60, 70 hours a week, multi-million dollar projects, that sort of thing. And I thought that was pretty stressful. And then I became a senior pastor. <laughs> Goodness me. There's nothing like it in life, being a senior pastor. That's a tough gig, that one. And so, you know, I know you do, but I want to encourage you to keep loving, uh, keep uh, looking out for, keep uh, continuing to keep an eye on the health and happiness and joy of pastors and... Uh, I just do want to really honour you guys for the great work you're doing. And I do believe that you're up to a new thing. And I can just tell, listening to Gary over the last few days, you know, there is something stirring deep in his heart. And the question will be today, as I talk to you, are you willing to run with it if it's different? Um, because, uh, let me just give you a quick background. Uh, so I do, I do pastor Lighthouse. It's a church that's probably now about 48 years old. And uh, I pastored the church that I grew up in, so I've been in that church since I was 11. My mum and dad were Baptists, got filled with the Holy Spirit and got the right foot of fellowship. <laughs> Out the door, and uh, yep, a few people still cheering about that. And uh, so they got booted out for speaking in tongues and arrived at the lighthouse when I was 11. And I have literally been there ever since. And so I'm, uh, I just turned 50 last weekend. You, what do you think? You're thinking he's probably, you were already trying to work it out, weren't you? He's like probably 34. <laughs> work with me. I told my church, you know, I, uh, literally my church were so happy that I turned 50 because for like literally a year, every Sunday, 
I'd say, how great is it to be in your 40s? And then finally, when I turned 50, like, oh, thank goodness we can shut him up. He's been going on about it forever. And so I just feel like I'm in a good season. You know, it says uh, this, by the way, in Psalm uh, 37, 23. I'm not speaking about this, but I just thought of it. Um, this is what David says. David says, uh, I, I was young and now I'm old, but in all my life I have never seen the godly abandoned. And I want you to know that uh, the reason why you can believe that is because David, when he said that or wrote that, was about 69 years of age. I want you to know something. I loved uh, having young people and teenagers. But when a 17-year-old says to you, in all my life, (laughs) I have never seen God, godly people be abandoned, I'd be like, yeah. Well, you might need to live a little more before you tell us that. But when a 69-year-old says to you, in all my life, I have never seen the godly abandoned, then you can believe them. And I want to talk to you today as a 50-year-old in all my life. I have never seen God do what he does when we start to immerse our lives with lost people. And we, I inherited a church uh, that was fairly large at the time, 500 or so people. My pastor, Bill Beard, I married the pastor's daughter. Don't worry about anointing. Marry into it. In fact, I've been there that long. I've been there since I was 11. There's not a department I haven't served in or worked in or uh, volunteered in across. And so I pretty much figure senior pastor was the only job I hadn't done. And I reckon my pastor could have chosen a whole range of people to do the job. But for some reason, he chose me. And uh, we took on that church in 2000. And uh, we were kind of youth pastors for a little while, not on staff, but just doing that as a volunteer role. When I took on the church, we were a church that for many, many years uh, had focused on revival. And I want to talk to you a bit about that this morning and and, and, uh, challenge it a bit, but also enlarge it a bit. There's no doubt that uh, I guess any any one of us would want revival. We talked about it every Sunday. But I have a problem with the concept of revival. Um, I'm just going to, I thought I'd offend early and uh, then build into greater offense as the day goes on. So just, you know, hang on to the seat or grab the arm of the person next to you, whatever helps you get through this. And uh, the reason is because growing up in the church, we prayed a lot about revival. We talked about revival. Our language is about revival. We uh, said revival, revival, revival. And in a way, in 1997, kind of revival came, kind of like a refreshing. Um, But actually, none of it turned into uh, seeing people come to know Jesus. And I just want to make these comments up front that revival can, if we're not careful, and of course, any time God wants to supernaturally win people to Jesus and not use me, I'm up for it, right? Because I'm tired, and I'm ready for heaven. But if he wants to use me, then I'm up for it as well. And the problem with revival mentality is sometimes it's always about what's up ahead and never about what's here. Or worse, it's about us constantly asking God to do something that he clearly in his word asked us to do, which is to go and make disciples. And so we just began to tell our church, well, we're okay about revival if it's somewhere up ahead, but let's not get enamored by it. While we're waiting for revival, why don't we win people to Jesus now? That was all. It wasn't, a, it wasn't even a one or the other. It was just saying, well, let's get busy with the things that God said in the first place. You know, it says this, by the way, in Matthew 9.37, you can take out your devices, hop off Candy Crush, get off Facebook. This is what Jesus said, not me, Jesus said it. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers. Jesus is actually saying, listen, don't pray for a harvest. Don't keep praying for revival. Pray for people that will go into the harvest. No farmer ever shouts the crop in. He sends people to work in it and reap it. And what I have found as I have moved my life into the community is the harvest is huge. And you actually only have to walk into it or realize who you are when you get yourself to work to discover that actually God has already prepared it for you. 
And you just need to go take it. And for us, like I said to the guys the other day, we would literally every Tuesday night stand on the stage, the compass prayer, and we would pray people in. And my main campus that we started with is literally, you could throw a stone and we're at the, the city railway station in Wollongong. In fact, to get to the railway station, you have to physically walk past our door. You know, I feel like sometimes we should put like spikes or something just to... <laughs> stop people as they come in so we're praying from the north the south the east and the west everybody would get frenzied up in their prayer and uh you know some years they were praying for gold dust and gold teeth and you name it it was on we're praying for all sorts of things and as we're praying as a young man seriously just 18 19 years of age as a young man being involved in all that i loved the prayer but in my brain once the prayer was finished i thought to myself well let's go out but all we did was pray And I thought, well, our prayers mustn't be that strong because we've only got to physically, in prayer, move people two meters. So, you know, they accident, and and the hope is through the one day revival's coming that people will accidentally come to us. Or that I'll be sitting on a bus and, you know, my shadow, that's the day we're looking for. My shadow will win people to Jesus. It'll be just like Azusa Street and all the ones we love to quote and the romance we have around what used to be but not what's here. And so just four years ago, I had the opportunity to literally change my job. I feel a bit weird. I feel like I've gone from a secular job, left it, gone into ministry, and now I've kind of left it to go back into the world. And I've gone back in, and 80% of my life is inside community at a whole bunch of levels. I only spend two hours a week literally in my office at church, and the rest of the time is out. I'm the chaplain for an NBL basketball team. Who loves the Adelaide 36ers? I don't. I was just, yeah, you got that guy Randall, right? If you don't know my team, my team's the one that Randall in your team keeps hating on. But I've moved on. So I've been the chaplain for 12 years. Thank God I did. You know, when I first took on that role, I said to the guys, I walked into that role thinking that they'd roll the red carpet out. Say, thank God Paul's here. Been waiting for him to arrive. I'll never forget the first day I got there. I walked up to the head coach, introduced myself. He said, oh, all right, you're the rev, are you? He said, all right, here's one rule. You can be here, but stay out of my road. Well, I thought, how rude. I, I don't need to come here to get that. I can go to my church to get that. And so I made a commitment that I will be here as long as people get saved. And so the first year, nothing. Second year, nothing. Third year, I'm thinking, what am I still doing here? Fourth year, nothing. And I began to realize that God was teaching me something. People aren't an object. They're people. And that sometimes the best way to reach people is to genuinely get to know them for who they are. And I realized God taught me in six years that I actually have to be the kind of person that is willing to stay with people even if they don't achieve my goal of them becoming saved. Because what I know is this, that the world is suspicious of the church. The world thinks that we turn up in their places and they watch us and we stay there for a while, but they pick up that because they didn't become what we wanted them to become, we move on to the next group of people and we've taught the world that we're only arrived to fulfill an agenda we have. And so we've learned as a church at Lighthouse, that we've learned that whatever it is we do with our community, we stick with them We love them, we're committed to them, even if they don't come to our church. And I can't tell you the breeze that has blown through our community because of years and years of perception that the church is really only here long term if you join us. And it's changed the way people see or think about us. And I want to talk to you today about something that significantly changed or challenged me Uh, about six or seven years ago on this journey. I want you to know something. I say this everywhere and people don't really believe me, uh, but it's true. And that is if my church lighthouse was to shut down, my community would genuinely be upset. My community know of a few churches, but they definitely know of my church. I regularly turn up into places where by the moment I say I'm from Lighthouse, I always hear from people that don't know Jesus, oh, are you from Lighthouse? 
We love Lighthouse. They don't come to Lighthouse, but they love Lighthouse. Because what happens is when you begin to serve your community, your community love it. And they begin to own it. And so here I was watching the news one night, and this story on the screen came on, which began to paint a picture for me that I feel like God said for us and has now used it literally around the world. And it was the story of a French sailor who was off the coast of Australia. Some of you probably saw this story. And he's gone and got himself shipwrecked off the coast of Australia. The story goes like this. The Mayday call goes out and the only boat or vessel in any distance to rescue him was the cruise boat Orion. The cruise boat Orion has 250 fully paid passengers who have been waiting for their trip of a lifetime to head down to the Antarctic. The captain in that moment without flinching makes a decision to turn his cruise boat around and go rescue the French sailor. I've got the footage, the news footage of that story. I want you to have a look at it, and then I want to talk to you today about what began to change our church like never before. Have a look at this. A sailor who was stranded at sea for days is now recovering after his dramatic rescue on Sunday night. Frenchman Alain Delord was on a solo journey around the world when his yacht hit rough waters south of Hobart, forcing him to abandon ship. His distress call was met by the cruise ship Orion, which was traveling from Antarctica. Well, we, we were about uh, 680 miles south of his position, and we were actually on our way to Macquarie Island. The rescue coordination center in Canberra called us and uh, said we were Johnny on the spot, pretty much. It took us a, a, a full 53 hours to get from where we were to him. He had to up with, with two nights in the raft before we could uh, get to it. The Frenchman was finally spotted in the evening, but with little time to spare. We've probably got about an hour and a half of daylight left. We've got low visibility. The cloud, cloud ceiling's about 300 feet, and it's just on a mile and a bit visibility. So it may get darker quicker, we don't know, but it's a bit of a race against time. There's still some hazards drawing him up in through the side gate and uh, even just using the boats in these conditions. This footage, captured by a freelance journalist on board the Orion, shows the moment Delord is pulled to safety. And you can see how dangerous these conditions are. The boat is being thrown about. My God, I wouldn't want to be in there right now. Falcon is having a hard time pulling him in. Oh, and he's being beaten against the side of the boat. It is very, very difficult what is going on. Do you hear that? And he's on! He's on! He's on! <laughs> They've got him. He looks to be in a conscious state, which is great news. And now, this is the moment of truth, finally, to get him onto the boat. He's very anxious, obviously, to get out of that boat and onto our ship and get a hot meal. While Delord's trip may not have gone as planned, he has certainly come a long way in his adventure. After a gourmet meal and a nice bottle of red, he's currently recuperating <laughs> in a luxury suite, complete with a marble bathroom, round-the-clock room service, and a bed he'll certainly appreciate after days aboard a cramped life raft. I don't know whether you heard. So the captain makes a decision to turn the cruise boat where people have paid good money to go in a certain direction... And he turns it 53 hours into a storm to pick up a man who should know better. In fact, I'll tell you a couple of things about the story you don't know. This is the second time in two years that Frenchman has got shipwrecked. Who knows he needs to try another hobby. <laughs> and the funny thing was, I was in uh, Sean Stanton's church in Canberra, and I was uh, speaking this message, and there was a woman at the back there while I was talking about this particular part. She started smiling and giggling. A bit strange, but I get that a bit. And so when, after the service, she came running down, and she said, did you notice that I was smiling and giggling? No, nope, not at all, I said. And so she came down, and I don't want to go there, and she came down, and she said, I'm telling you why I was laughing. I was laughing because my husband was the guy that took the Mayday call in Canberra. 
And she said, he's a Christian. He's the only Christian in the organization. And she said, I want you to know what happened. When that Mayday call came through and they realized it's the same guy they rescued 18 months earlier, every, all, of the, all of the maritime rescue service guys in the room said, let's not rescue him. <laughs> Isn't that typical of Australians? You're, you're paid to do a job. Yeah, but we just don't feel like it. Yeah, he's not our type. Let him drown. And the thing I've found is this, is that we can unknowingly think that we get to choose who gets the grace of God. You know, in my church, we take 40 young people, around 40 young people off the street. They're homeless every year, put them through our program. And not only do they get a roof over their head, they get taught life skills. They, they, get, they get taught, um, I thought it was coming through my mic there for a second there. I thought, um, and and we, we do all that, but they also give their lives to Christ. We often see them get water baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And, um, so it's a great thing. But when I go to raise money in the community, I get a reaction from people. Because they're, you know, they're teenagers or late teens and they're pretty feral and they don't behave that well and all that kind of stuff. And the thing is what I notice is if I was trying to raise money for little kids, no problem. But seemingly raising money for teenagers who they think ought to know better is really difficult to do. But you know what we've decided is we don't judge people first and love them second. We've decided and determined in our community we will love everybody and we'll let the Lord sort out those that he wants to sort out along the way. And I want to encourage you today. Can I talk to you today about how, the, how God wants to take you in Fuse Church on an inconvenient journey? Who's, who's excited? That's normally the response I get. Only the pastor's excited normally. Well, by the end of it, you'll either be excited or the good news is I want to talk to you about the difference between a cruise boat and a rescue boat. And the good news is even if you don't like my message, you want to run out of here and book a cruise. That's the, that's the worst that could happen today out of the whole time we're going to be together. And so I've been on three cruises now and I remember the very first cruise I went on. Uh, it's an incredible experience because when you get on the boat and you pay your money, everything is done for you. It's beautiful. Who wouldn't want that life? And so you get on. I love, you know, you, you hear the captain. He sort of, you know, gets on at the microphone. He says, oh, well, good afternoon, everybody. It's so great to have you on our cruise. We just want to say thank you for being here. And I want you to know that myself and my team, they are here to ensure that you have the best time of your life. If you need anything whatsoever, please don't hesitate in contacting us and make sure that we can give you such a fantastic time. And it seems to be that on cruise boat churches, everybody quickly gets the message that the pastors and the leaders are here to ensure everybody gets their needs met. And that instead of actually being the guy that leads you on an inconvenient journey, they end up becoming the people who better make sure we feel good about the experience we're having. And if we don't, we're moving on. You okay? I can't imagine why I prune people out of my church from time to time. <laughs> and so the problem with that is you, you actually don't want pastors whereby they feel the pressure to please everybody. Because what happens in those cultures, and every pastor feels it, but what happens in those cultures is that the pastor gets worn down and the people will never be happy because it's impossible for us as pastors to make you all happy. We often say to my church, you know, like for example today, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, uh, I'm finding the cold difficult, you know. I, personally, I believe if it's going to be this cold, it should snow, at least it'll be nice. Yeah. Right, people say, so if you could do something about that. And so right now today, we could do this, we could say, hands up those who are cold and half, you don't have to do it, it's just, it's just hands up those who are cold and half the church put out, hands up those who are hot, the other half. So which should we do? Should we make it hot or should we make it cold? If I make it hot, one bunch of people are going to be upset. But if I make it cold, the other bunch of people are going to be upset. So the best thing is that we do in church life is to just let people lead. And say, so I'm committed to go whether it's hot or cold. I'm committed to go whether it's fast or slow. I'm committed to go. You know, one of the things when I took on my church was because I'd watched as I've grown up, I just watched us talk a lot about kingdom-like things, but not often doing the kingdom-like things. And so when, the very first message I spoke, which I thought was a cracker, I thought this will turn into like back then, you know, like a tape series. And so I began to preach this message on Sunday. Uh, very soon after I became a senior pastor, I preached this message. What if it's not about you? 
Bible. That would be fantastic. And I, be, I began to preach. So what about now that we know God, what if it's not about uh, my favorite song, my favorite chair, my favorite car space, uh, my favorite this, my favorite that, I, I like it warmer, colder. What if it's not about those things? What about now that we know Jesus, it's about God and other people? So I'm thinking, this is going, I preached this whole thing for about six months. I can really do series. I'm preaching away. And, and, my, and, and over the a course of two years, I grew my church from 500 to 300 people. That's a spiritual gift, people. That is difficult to do. But what I realized was it had become about us. And it had become about our favorite song. And it had become about our comfort, our chair. The things that we expect. We've paid good money to be here. I can't believe that they've changed that, moved that, adjusted that. That's not what we signed up for. And people began to react to the shift. I've got to tell you, all that I have in my heart, I'm not that talented. I'm like this accidental leader. I feel like I've fumbled my way through leadership. But all I know is this. I cannot live my Christ-filled life hoarding it. I believe that what Christ has given me is like nothing else. I am amazed that Christ would give his life for me. I have been a Christian since I'm six years of age, but I live with a growing and overwhelming love and gratefulness for Jesus that has never gone away. And when I meet people that don't have what I have, I just want to connect them somehow to it. But we understand these days, in Australia particularly, that Australians aren't waking up Sunday morning thinking, what's a great church I should go to? It's not that they're against us, it's just not in their brain. And so we cannot make this the only way that people come to know Jesus. We have to start empowering the people that sit in the pews and start encouraging you that you are called of God, not to be an evangelist, to be who you are in your place of work, sport or hobby. And so I want to give you a few comparisons I just said. So when you get on the cruise boat, everything is done for you. In fact, they give you a butler. I was just on one. I just came back from Europe for some preaching. But on the way back, I did one of those river cruises. And they give you a butler just for you. And you know what they do? Every time you leave the room and you come back in, you can't find your glasses. (laughs) You know why? Because they're on the origami towel that they've made into an elephant. And there's your sonny's right on there. Or they make a giraffe or a... And whenever I travel with my daughter, she can't wait to leave the room and come back and see what exotic animal has been made out of a towel. In fact, it's a bit weird because every time you leave, they seem to know and they come and tidy your room up. For a while there, I thought he might have been living in our cupboard. He's just so quick, he's in there. And we can get to... The stats say this, that the longer that you're a Christian, the less likely you are to lead people to Christ. And if we're not careful, what can happen in our lives, mine included, is instead of this being about getting more people to get what we have, this can become about what we need more of for ourselves. And somewhere along the line, the thing got turned around. And it was supposed to be we get filled with Jesus, it amazes us, and we go find someone else to get filled with that same spirit. That was the intent. And it's not a judgment, it's just like the frog in the kettle thing. It just slowly, we just forget what we were here for. And here's, here's what I noticed, is that what happens in our lives is, uh, like a cruise boat, when I first got on, the other thing they do, aside from giving you a butler, is they give you about three hours warning, and they say, we're going to do the safety drill. And we're going to go downstairs, and I think it's a, it's a weird picture, because here's 4,000 people. We're all dressed up, and we've got these really big, long, yellow life jackets on. And if you've ever been on a cruise boat, they're palatial. There's a golden stair. And I was sitting at the bottom of the golden stair with a life jacket on, listening to them talk to us about how we can save ourselves when the boat goes down. But the interesting thing was, we couldn't have been drier. And pretty much, I'm pretty sure, it was almost a 99.9% chance we weren't going to sink. Yet here we were, spending time practicing how to be more safe. And what can happen in church life is already safe people spend more time practicing how to be more safe. How's it going? 
about the time in the meeting where everything drops out of the bottom. <laughs> and listen to me. When I first took on the church, I'm preaching about reaching people and how we just need to find ways to connect what we have to others. And people would come up to me and say, Paul, we just need more deep teaching. I said, really? I said, all right. Can I ask a question? Well, when was the last time you led somebody to the Lord? <coughs> As you had that cough comes on when you ask those questions. I said, yeah, just how, how long since you, well, probably, I don't know, 15, 15, 20, 20, maybe 22 years, 22 years, I think, since last time. I said, I'm not trying to be rude, but the kind of leader I am is that I'm not prepared to preach anything deep until we do the fundamental things Jesus said. I'm not trying to be rude. But this, in the Western church, there, we want to accumulate, we, we listen to that many messages. We sing that many songs. We have, at the touch of a button, the, mess, the message that will meet you right where you're at, give you what you need. And, and, and I've got to tell you, one of the mantras that was in my church was, we just want more, Lord. We want more, Lord. We want more, Lord. Now, I get what you're saying. There's at one level, I do want more of Jesus. I get it. But here's my thing. I don't want more of Jesus when people in my city have none. There's something wrong when safe people make the boat about them becoming more safer, deeper knowledge, more of Jesus, more of this, more of that. And the, and the community look at us and think, gee, they, they spend all their time making themselves they're safer than what they already are. And I think the shift that I can hear in your pastor's heart is that he wants to move you in a direction. He wants to move you away where life is no longer about reinforcing your own safety, but is about helping you take a risk, helping you move into the uncomfortable, helping you move into maybe the dangerous in such a way, because here's what, here's what I know is going to happen. I'm going to promise you something. When he moves you in a direction towards lost people, and it feels uncomfortable, and, and this will happen because it happened to my church, and it happened to me personally. When we, by the way, when, I, when we move into transforming the community, something happened I didn't expect. God transformed me. I am not the same person I was 17 years ago. It's totally changed me. And so what happens is when your pastor moves you in this direction, you're going to say things to yourself like, I didn't sign up for this. This is, I, I, this is not the direction I thought we were going. But I, I want to get, can I give you your pastor's job description? He doesn't even know what it is. <laughs> I know we only work Sundays. <laughs> I want to tell you what, what Gary's job is. Gary's job is to take you in a direction you don't want to go. That's what leaders do. And if you would have watched the footage, by the way, you only saw the end, you know, everyone's cheering. <laughs> well, you look at the start, everybody's mad. They're angry. He's what? He's doing what? We're on a holiday. He can't turn the boat round and take it in the wrong direction where we're all going to get seasick in the storm. He can't do that. And they're furious. But watch them at the end. Oh, they're clapping like they thought of it. That's what, that's what my church is right now. People in our community coming to Jesus everywhere. They're leading them to Jesus, not me. They lead them to Jesus. And I hear them saying to people like, oh, we're so glad Pastor Paul took us in this direction. I'm like, you what? You were, the, you were the flipping one that was causing all the trouble five years ago. And now you're acting like it was your idea, but who cares? Because when you get there, you'll be thankful. It's uncomfortable along the way. I, I want you to know, my life is constantly inconvenient. Let me give you, people say, oh, Paul, could you just teach us how to have balance? No, balance is a new age concept. I haven't had balance for 17 years. I'll tell you what i got, chaos. That's what I live in, chaos. Chaos, because I'd love just to be able to pastor a church, that'd be fine, that's easy enough, but now I've got to pastor a community. 
Well, that's chaos because they don't like me sometimes. They don't agree with me. The head coach doesn't like me, clearly. And I've got to manage all that at the same time I'm raising up my own family and leading, being a husband and all the things I do. And I think what I've done, I've taught the leaders all over this weekend, there are certain things you've got to make friends with and I have made friends with. Life is frustrating. Life is inconvenient. Life costs me way more than I expected it to. You know, we began to, as we turned the church, our church was like a big ship that needed turning. It took us seven years. I began to raise money because God told me, to, Paul, you need to raise money for your future. We called it building for the future. We had no buildings for the future, nothing in mind. But I just did what the Lord asked me to do. People would come up to me. We're taking extra offerings to raise money for buildings for the future, which we now have, by the way. We didn't have them, but we now have because we did what God told us to do. And I'd be saying, we're just going to take up a special offering today for buildings for the future. I would people line up and say, Paul, if you, mention, if you ask for money again, we're leaving. I said, I love you, but I am way more scared of God than I am of you. And if God has said that this church has a future and it's going to cost us, I'm only passing on what God said. I'm not accumulating the money for me. I'm accumulating so this church has a future. And thank God we did it because we, we own two buildings now, and those, both those buildings are 24-7 community spaces. They are filled with hundreds and hundreds of people every week that would not normally come to a Sunday but fill our buildings for good food and great coffee every week. You know, in Nehemiah chapter 6, I lo- you know, you all know the story of Nehemiah. I think I love this picture because Nehemiah is the kind of leader I want to be. Nehemiah is the guy who was given a great project to build a wall, a great vision. And you know what? It was not really the enemy that was trying to get at him. It was his well-meaning friends who were constantly threatening him with the enemy that were trying to get him off the wall of the vision that he was doing. But in Nehemiah chapter 6, here's what happens. Another attempt for well-meaning people to get him off the wall. This is what they say. They say, Nehemiah, the enemy's coming. You need to come. Leave your people there. Leave them on the wall. Don't worry about them. Leave them on the wall. And you need to come inside the temple. We'll lock the door and at least you'll be safe from the enemy. Watch what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 6.11, he says, Should someone in my position run from danger, enter the temple to save my own life, I won't do it. In other words, he's not prepared to leave his community, he's not prepared to leave his city, he's not prepared to leave the people just so he could be safe. If the city's going down, he's going down with it. You know, I had a family about... Seven years ago in my church, they're a great family, I loved them. And they had been there for many, many, to- many, many years. And for some reason, the woman felt she got a dream that a tsunami, a literal tsunami, was coming to Wollongong to wipe us all out. And you know what happens when you, you know, she had a few well-meaning friends that would confirm it. And, you know, every time she opened the Bible and she saw river, water, ocean, whatever, that confirmed it as well. So it was a building case, as you can imagine. Except her pastor's telling her it's not true, but that didn't matter apparently, just as long as she's seen water. That's working. And then finally it got pretty bad because she's publicly telling everybody on Facebook that the city's going to be... And, be, and what was worse was she said it was the judgment of God to our city. What's worse, thank God she didn't put Lighthouse on the bottom, but she sent an email to our city councillor saying, I know this is going to sound weird, oh you bet it is, uh, that, that our city is going to be flooded by a tsunami, you need to evacuate the city. I mean, it's 300,000 people. And so finally she came and saw me and uh, I don't normally entertain silly people but it was getting a bit crazy so I did. And I sat with her and I talked to her theologically why I felt that was not right etc etc and I gave her lots of scriptures, that's fine. At a date she didn't believe me and they actually literally took their kids out of school, sold their house and moved to high grounds in the mountains. Literally all that because of this one thought they had. But I said to her and she didn't really get it. I said, I can tell you, forget all those scriptures I gave you. Forget that I'm your leader. Forget all that stuff. I'll tell you the one reason why what you're saying is not true. is because if anything bad is happening to this community, the church is the one that should stay. You've, I don't know where you got your theology, but we're not here to rescue ourselves. So when trouble's on, I want you to know in the city of Wollongong, if, the, if Wollongong is going down, I will be the last person there. I'm not here to save myself. I'm already saved. 
And so we sometimes get a theology that the world is going to hell anyway, so if we just keep out of its road and let them you know, come to their own end. But that's not the way Jesus taught us to reach our community. When I'm on the cruise boat, and it's about to take off, I like to go to the back of the boat. I like to watch the world go by. I like to give it a little wave. Sometimes I name a few parishioners. Like that tsunami woman. See you later, going to miss you. Not. And it's the cool thing about a cruise boat. You're able to literally forget the world. You can sail away from it. But the church is not a cruise boat. We're not here to watch the world at a distance. Did you know in John chapter 17, Jesus and God are having a conversation. They're trying to work out what on earth did we do with the disciples that we've just been with for three years. The conversation goes like this. God says, Jesus, uh, you've sort of trained them. They're not that good. We're worried this is not going to work. What should we do? Jesus said, well, how about just like you sent me into the world, why don't we send them into the world? And he said, what we'll do is, though, we'll pray for their safety. And I want you to know that the direction of the church is into the world. It's not the world to us. The direction of the church is into the world. And it's going to be dangerous, otherwise he wouldn't have said pray for them, that they'd be safe. And so here's what I grew up on. I grew up on a mentality that said, when you get saved, you need to come out and be ye separate. Stay away from those heathens. Stay away from them. But what it taught me, and I had to relearn it again the right way, what it taught me was an insipid Christianity. That if it ever goes near evil, it will crumble. If it ever goes near darkness, darkness will blot out the light. But actually, we have to teach a generation that actually what's in them is greater than what's in the world. And that actually, that when you guys go into the world, here's what I've taught my church. This is the culture of my church. We can go into any sphere of society. I can walk into the Hawks basketball team, NBL. I can walk into the business chamber. I can meet with the mayor. I can uh, get uh, with the networking group. And you name the, uh, the organization or wherever I find myself, I can walk into those spaces. And I want you to know I am in no danger of becoming like them, but they are absolutely in danger of becoming like me. And that's the culture. So let's so we're we're not avoiding certain groups of people because they're not like us in fear that if we go near them suddenly we'll become like us. We actually believe we're on the winning side. We already have the victory, and that actually we don't need to wave the world go by. We're going to go straight into it and immerse ourselves in it. The kingdom of God will fail for two reasons. Number one, because you don't know who you are, and number two, you don't know that where you work is your calling. I use this silly example, so I'll use it again. The reason why Christians at the work party drink more than the non-Christians is not because they like to drink. The reason they do that is because they don't know that they're a son of God or a daughter of God, number one. And they don't know that the people God has put you with at work are the people he's put you with to influence. Because you think you're going to work to earn money, to pay the rent, and to get the kids through school. But actually, God gave you work because work is God-given. It's not a curse. He's given you work that you may have a mission field to which you get to be Christ in that place. I'm not talking perfect behavior. I'm just talking you get to be light in darkness. Hmm. That's why I wrote, Thank God It's Monday. What sort of pastor writes a book, Thank God It's Monday? When I wrote that book, all the pastors come up to me and said, Ah, Finally, somebody's written a book about our day off. (laughs) It's not always about you, Pastor. (laughs) Let me give you a couple of things. As I said, the problem is, if we create a cruise boat church, is it always ends up being that the goal of the captain and his team is to keep everybody happy. I know in a temporary way it feels good, 
But long term, trust me, you don't want a church where the pastors have to keep caving under the peer pressure that if he changes direction, everyone's going to leave. Come close. We're just going to talk together. Are you tired of not seeing people saved? You want to fill this place with people you've never seen before? Do you want to do what, like what I do every five weeks when we have water baptisms? I look at the people going through water baptism and I say to myself, I have never seen you before in my life. You know what, how they got here? This is their first service. They're getting water baptized. Someone who recognized that their Monday life is a calling led them to Jesus at work, started taking them to their connect group, hadn't even brought them to church. They've been going to connect group for a couple of months. They talked to them, not me, not the pastor, didn't call me up or one of the other guys. They realized that they could disciple them and they disciple them and said, hey, one of the things we do once you're giving life to Christ is you go through the waters of baptism. It'd be a great way for you to see our church. I tell you, it happens to me all the time. I sit there, I cry most of the time through it because, it's to, because to me, it's the dream of you becoming the ministers in reality. And so the challenge for you today is if you really deep down have a yearning to see this place filled with people that wouldn't normally come, that is if you could see yourself like God sees yourself, and you could see yourself as the one, the person that God's put in that place. I tell my church, I've been saying it for years, there's, this, there's no, I don't have a pulpit, but there's no, there's no power here. This is not powerful. This here is not powerful, no extra anointing. I don't have any more power, nothing special, nothing magic on me going on. And sometimes we think, sometimes we think if we could just get Pastor Paul to pray. Or, you know, Gary, he's all right, but we see him every week. But if Pastor Paul could just touch me. You know, here's another Paul over here. Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul. If Paul, if, I, if his jacket would just brush by me. <laughs> and then maybe I'd just be more anointed to do what I do. If I could just go to that church, go to that conference, if I could just meet that people, then I could just catch what they've got. And all that silly rhetoric when all the time it's right there in you. You don't need another conference. You just need to know who you are. Let me give you a couple of tips on how you can turn your church into a community-engaging church. By the way, here's a stat. You should have a look at this stat. Just Because it feels like even in the ACC, it feels like we're growing but actually, in a nation, we're not really, church-wise. In 1976, our population was 13.5 million. 3.9 million people said they attended church regularly, which is once a month. Fast forward to today, we just hit 24 million people, but 400,000 less people would nearly double the population. 400,000 less people go to church on Sunday. It's not that we should feel bad about it. It's just a good sobering statistic to say Australians are no longer amored. He's enamored with what we do Sundays. But here's the lesson, and I want to teach. I teach every church across Australia. I want you to know that while these lights are awesome, to invest in more lights will not bring people. To, I mean, thank God you've got two guitarists and some of you thinking, if only we had three guitarists, more people would come. If the stage was bigger, if the carpet was nicer, if we could make the chairs softer, make it look more opening, uh, all the things they think, if we could just do something, here they come. But the stats say Australians aren't thinking that way. It's not that we shouldn't have a great Sunday. Absolutely. In fact, your Monday needs a great Sunday. It's just that what you've got to do is recognize this can no longer be the only vehicle to which people get saved. What if you spend six months on your friend getting them all the way here to hear Gary because he's the guy that apparently leads people to Jesus? What if you bring them all the way here and Gary decides he's doing a series on money? <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, flip. Just it's take me months to get him here. And he speaks on money. Exactly what the world thinks he's going to speak on. Well, don't worry. Gary's not here to save your friends. He's here to empower you to do it with your friends. Here's some tips. You okay? All right. Good. Here's what we have to do. In our thinking, we need to move from Sunday to Monday. Don't, don't stop Sundays. But in your thinking, you need to move from Sunday to Monday. Did you know in our church, Monday, when it comes to social media, Monday is the biggest social media of our day. 
We have these red glasses called TGM glasses. All pe- people in my church go to work and they photograph their boss. They love working for their boss. Or if they love working where they work or they get served by a great person who serves them well, they photograph. And we talk about what the church looks like midweek. And the church midweek is not more photos of people raising their hands in a dark room with colored lights. That's not the church midweek. The church is you midweek. Whatever you do, that's the church. And so we change what we do. And so we make sure that there's an emphasis, certainly on Sundays, but an even greater emphasis on Monday. Sunday is not God's most favorite day of the week. All days are his favorite. Did you know what uh, Sunday mentality creates? It creates a dualism thought. That some things are spiritual or more spiritual than others. That sometimes uh, if you do my job, or in order to be truly fulfilled, you need to leave what you do and do what we do. That senior pastor is the highest echelon of what we do around this place. And so what happens is you're either senior pastor or missionary. That's up there. Nothing wrong with missionaries. We got missionaries. We do mission stuff. But what it creates is we never say it, but inadvertently we teach that the ultimate spiritual journey is that we all become pastors at some level. It's just not true. Because what happens is the second level is somebody like, you know, Christian workers social workers, or um, Christian counsellors, that's a good one, second tier. And then you poor people, you know, you, who's an accountant? You poor accountant, you know, or tradie. There's a couple of tradies here, you know, Paul over there, he's a tradie, chippy, and so there he, there he is, he's trying to desperately to be as spiritual as he possibly can, but how on earth can he be spiritual if his trajectory is never on the track to become a pastor? And so the only way the businessman at the, at the lower level can ever feel spiritual about what they do midweek is they have to take something from the higher level, like a Bible study, and start a Bible study in their business on a Tuesday lunchtime. And as they're sitting there having their Bible study, thinking, oh man, this is so great. Now I feel spiritual. There's nothing wrong with a Bible study at work. There's only something wrong with it if you're doing it to feel spiritual. Because you should go into your week completely convinced as a tradesman, as a school teacher, as a nurse, as a doctor, as a fireman, you should go into work completely convinced that you are doing what God has called you to do. Because when you can do that, you will see your world differently. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has gone ahead of you to prepare good things for you to do. I reckon the maths works. In In current church culture, apparently the pastors and the spiritual win people to Jesus. But it doesn't add up. What if instead of the top five people in the church are responsible for winning Jesus, what if the 150 started seeing who they were and where they were? Things would begin to change and happen. You know, the next thing we did that we had to avoid was this idea, I'm nearly done, this idea that the further you go, the more spiritual it is, the higher deployment. In other words, in order for you to be spiritually fulfilled, you need to go on a two-week missions trip. You need to spend two grand, two weeks, and go. There's nothing wrong with those things. We do them. I'm just trying to challenge this concept because I'm a fisherman. I used to fish on the side of the lake, board a kayak. When I was on the side of the lake, I used to cast my line all the way into the center And then when I got my kayak, I moved my boat all the way into the center of the river. But you know what I did? I cast my line all the way back to the shore. Because fishing and evangelism have the same thought. The further you go, the more fish there are. But you know what? It's not true. I want you to know, if you never travel, you have enough fish right below you to influence for Jesus. If you never go anywhere than 10 feet across the road to your neighbor to just happen to smile a bit more to your local corner store guy, to create a coffee conversation with the person you're already having coffee with. You need to know that spiritual, listen to me, spiritual is not far away. That's a wrong culture. You You have to go and get spiritual and bring it back. It's not true. Spiritual is already in you. You have everything in you that you need. This church, listen to me, I'm going to prophesy, that'll help you. Uh, I'm going to prophesy that this church, just gave a spiritual tone for you, that this church, this church has everything it needs to transform this community. You don't need another message, another study. You just need to let your pastors lead you in an inconvenient direction. 
thank God I'm leaving today. <laughs> I don't want to do that. That sounds too hard. I've already done it anyway. Last thought, two things that changed our city or the way we reach our city. You know how everyone says, find a need and meet it. It's only half the story. Here's what we found that changed the way we reach people. We found out what our community loves and we go and join them. We go do it with them. In other words, stop looking for what's wrong with your community and start looking for what's strong. Stop looking for what's broken and work with what's already good. Because what happens is all you do is do need-based community work. It's high resource, takes your money, takes your energy. There's nothing wrong with it, but I'm saying look for the assets. And, and we turn up in everything in our community that our community love to do. And they was like, man, everything we do, fun runs, rides, surf club, you name it, lighthouse. There's always somebody from lighthouse there. And it's changed the way they see us. And last thought, I said it before, was we have committed... I, I tell you this with all my heart. I've taught our church this. We will love our community even if they never come. You know, some of my best friends are non-Christians. Two of my close friends are basketballers. They've been in our team for six years. They're very tall, six foot eleven. And they're very good friends of mine. They don't know Jesus. They, for some strange reason, no matter how many times I invite them, I can't get them to church. But we talk about God all the time. And if my attitude was, really, I've only got time for them if they look like they're getting close to God, then we would not be friends today. I would have dumped them ages ago. But my heart is, I will love and relate to those men for the rest of my life. Whether they turn up to Sunday or not. And the community pick up on that spirit. They recognize that, gee... Everybody we meet from Lighthouse seems committed to us, whether we're for them or not. You know, as I finish today, I d I'm not going to show that video because I don't have time, but um, it was just simply a video, of, uh, and I showed some of the guys, just typically of the kind of people that... You got time? Well, let's have a quick look, and I'll show you. This is just three interviews of the type of people that we've raised up in our church. They're uh, not pastors but people that lead people to Christ because they know that their Mondays are called of God and they're making a difference. Have a look. I'm Kylie. I am the owner of Boston Espresso. Um, I opened this cafe a year and a half ago and we're located in the heart of Wollongong. My name is Wayne and I am partnering with God in creating the most inspirational clearance outlet that provides awesome value. We are called Self for Less. My name is Steve Bird. Uh, last year I was appointed head teacher PDHP here at Kira High School. Uh, I love my job. It's a fantastic school. I've been running Boston's for about a year and a half. Me and my husband um, started the business together. We have about seven staff. I've been in the furniture business on and off since 98. I was importing furniture from Egypt, very ornate French antique style furniture. Did really well for quite a while, then grew too big for my boots and massive overhead and stopped listening to God and went down my own path and, and then that went down pretty bad. Got back to zero and then started afresh and then God called us back over to the Eastern Seaboard where we started Sell for Less. We know that there's many great cafes in Wollongong and we just wanted to deliver something different. So for us, it was just um, being able to um, have conversations with our customers and get to know them on a personal level, um, even just creating a space where they can come in and feel comfortable and just feel at home. So a lot of teachers come to school and, and, and their real focus for the day is just teaching their syllabus and getting that across as best they can to kids and they're passionate about their subject. Um, and as I am too, and really the, the real reason that gets me up and going every single morning is that um, I understand that each and every kid that comes into my classroom, each and every kid that, that I have on my basketball court or on my field or, or wherever else we're at, every single one of those kids, they're not there by accident. I believe that every single student that's in front of me, God has positioned it so, and he's positioned me to be the one to speak his truth into their lives. Selfless is different to 
most stores I know simply because God's got a different way of doing business than the world. So go textbook way, it's it's often you're looking at your gross profits and your net profits and your, your driving sales and all that sort of thing. But we actually don't have, uh, as crazy as it sounds, we don't have sales targets. We don't do commissions. Sunday's one of the busiest days of trade. We're closed. We have an opportunity to inspire, encourage, love, bring joy, bring hope into, you know, I don't know what other people's communities are like. Uh, I've lived in quite a few, but this particular community, it's, it's a lot of doom and gloom. And, you know, you ask anyone from the street, how's things? Oh, things are tough, things are terrible, whatever. And we get to be the light. The thing that I love about my working week is that I think back to when I experienced God and it was through, you know, going to a cafe um, at church and, you know, getting to meet people from church. Um, so for me, it's just facilitating that for uh, people that come into my cafe and, yeah, just being able to talk to them on a personal level and get to know them. So I had this great moment only a couple of weeks ago. I just had this realisation of, man, I'm just so restful on the weekend, but I had this complete mental reversal around where normally, like, a lot of people get through their week just to get to their weekend and then it's like, oh, you've got two days packing everything. But I just realised, man, the best part of my week is the Monday to Friday. And that's why I thank God for the Monday because I realise there's another five cracking days where I'm going to make a difference for God coming for the rest of the week. And I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know something cool is going to happen. I thank God it's Monday because, you know, on the weekend I'm a part of a great church lighthouse. Um, but during the week I get to come to work and um, not only am I being spiritual on the weekend, but from Monday to Saturday, I can come here and just be really intentional uh, with the people in our greater community. I thank God it's Monday, as, as well as I do for all the other days of the week, because he has called me to do what I'm doing. He's called others to be a missionary in the mission field. He's called others to be pastor of the church. He's called others right now to be mum at home but he's called me right now to do this retail what I'm doing he was trying to become a pastor because somebody told him because he's a good speaker the natural trajectory should be to leave his school teaching job and become a pastor well, thank God he didn't. I coached him out of it. <laughs> because Steve went on to use the gift that was given to him as a communicator. He, within a year, became a deputy principal. He started up an after-school program called How to Live with Purpose. Steve meets with nearly 100 teenagers every Friday afternoon. They volunteer to come. And he teaches them about how to live with purpose. What a waste it would have been to take him out of his calling, to put him into a forced human calling, to entertain Christian kids on a Friday night. Thank God it's Mondays about your, who you are. It's not about who the pastor is, but about who you are every day of the week. Don't live like it's thank God it's Friday. What you do is significant, meaningful, and God wants you to do it with an overwhelming sense of spirituality. This book is a story of how we transitioned Lighthouse into a community-engaging church where the people in the church win more people to the Lord than we do on Sundays. We still do that on Sundays, but I've watched a whole range of people come alive. This book will help you come alive. Uh, I'm happy to sign it for you if you buy it. It does devalue it when I sign it, but give it a go. I want to do something as I finish. I want to pray for you. Could, um, why don't you stand? I've been, uh, I've been listening to the echo of your pastor's heart. He says a few things, but I've actually been listening to his spirit the whole time I've been here. I want you to know I go to churches all over Australia, all around the world. But I've had an overwhelming sense when I've been with Gary and Jane this last few days that you are at a turning point. And I actually want to pray, and I want you to join in prayer, that, that I can't make you do this, but I want you to decide something. 
I want you to decide in your prayer, if you feel this is what God's telling you to do, that we will stick with this couple no matter how inconvenient it gets. Because the only way pastors can lead inconvenient churches is if people fall into line and are willing to also be inconvenienced. The only way not to do that, like the video we saw, was to jump off the boat. Because they're going to lead it in the way they think it needs to be led. But I want to say to you, if you're in for the ride of your life, if you're in for finally the greatest adventure you've ever had, if you finally want to see your faith go from average to exceptional, jump in line behind leaders that want to lead you toward community. Watch your life come to life. And I want us to pray today, and I want you to pray. And I just want you to make a commitment to the Lord. Lord, wherever they take us, wherever they take us, come on, I want you to bow your head. Father, I thank you for Gary and Jane. I just pray for them today. But I know there's a stirring in their heart. There's something new, something fresh. Lord, in a sense, Lord, when it comes to uh, leading the church the same way that it is, Lord, in a sense, it's almost like we've had enough of that style. Lord, we want to see souls. We want to see this community transformed. And I pray, Lord, you would increase that desire. You would give them wisdom and fresh vision and strategy. God, but I pray over this congregation. I pray, Lord, that men and women would fall into line. God, they would say that we don't care how tough this gets, how inconvenient this is. We're there. We're taking this uh, gospel message to a community that doesn't yet know Jesus. We're not waiting for them to come. We're willing to go. And I pray in Jesus' name, let this be a new day in Infused Church. Let it be the beginning of something incredible. Let the model to this nation, the way that people that sit in pews become ministers of the gospel and transformers of people who are far from you. We thank it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.